Moby Dick is one of those books that contains so many of the essential details of what it was like to be alive in the 19th century that coming from 100, more than 150 years later, we can get into that world and even recognize portions of our own world. That was Nathaniel Philbrick. He's the author of many books, including Why Read Moby Dick? And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Herman Melville's Moby Dick is considered a classic of American literature. It also has the distinction of being a novel we've all heard of, but few of us have tackled. We all know the bare bones of the story. Crazed Captain Ahab determined to hunt down, regardless of cost, the great white whale that bit off his leg. We also know that Moby Dick is a big, fat book, rife with symbolism and digressions. Some of us had it stuffed down our throats in high school and never want to pick it up again. Enter Nathaniel Philbrick. Nathaniel Philbrick is a writer based in Nantucket. He's written many historical books, a number of them about the sea and sailing, including the 2000 National Book Award winner for nonfiction, In the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex, which, by the way, recounted the real-life inspiration for Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Philbrick is also an unabashed and well-informed fan of Moby Dick, the book he calls Our American Bible. And he explains his thinking in a short, lucid book aptly named Why Read Moby Dick. When I spoke with Nathaniel Philbrick, I asked him why he wanted to write a book about reading Moby Dick. I've always been fascinated with the relationship between Melville and Hawthorne. In fact, I was named for Nathaniel Hawthorne. And that was sort of always the angle I wanted to bring to light because it seemed like, yeah, everyone knows Moby Dick, but if they had some context, the personal and historic side of it, that maybe they would uh, return to the novel. Because I think there's a real danger that we're going to lose. People are, n are not going to turn to these novels that have so much to offer us. And so this little book, my whole hope was that if you pick up the novel, even if you read just one paragraph, <laughs> the mission will have been accomplished. Well, the mission was certainly accomplished in my case. I am looking for my copy of Moby Dick because I know I have it. Well, that's great to hear. Well, I'm like a lot of people where at 16, I was handed this book. Mm -hmm. And in that way that we all know there are wonderful teachers who really know how to teach literature. And then there are teachers who absolutely murder it. Right. And I had a murderous one. Yeah. And, you know, Moby Dick is so susceptible to being murdered. <laughs> you know, everyone wants to see the white whale, not as a white whale, but as a symbol for something. And there's just no quicker way to lose, I think, a readership, particularly a young readership, than to foist a pre-interpretation on an already challenging book. When did your fascination with Moby Dick begin? It really began in a negative way quite early. My father, who is now a retired English professor, has a specialty in Ameri maritime literature and would teach the book just about every year. And, you know, he would talk endlessly about it. And my brother and I just thought this, this was just awful. And by the time I was a teenager, I just already hated the book, even though I hadn't read a word of it. But then as a senior in high school, I was told I had to read it. Otherwise, I wasn't going to graduate. And 
I opened the pages, and at that first sentence, call me Ishmael, I was harpooned. And uh, it just was a transformative experience for me, but it put me in the awkward situation of having to admit that my father had been right. (laughs) Can we talk a bit about the narrative voice of Ishmael? Yeah. I mean, Ishmael, for me, is what made the novel immediately beguiling uh, when I first read it. You know, he he begins with those famous words, and and they're so confiding. You know, call me Ishmael, but wait a minute, Ishmael's not his real name. Who is this guy? You know, it's just a wonderful combination of intimacy and mystery. And, you know, he then describes how he's depressed, you know, damp, drizzly November in my soul, which anyone, I don't care, you don't have to be a teenager to relate to that. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, Whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. You know, he's wonderfully funny. He meets up with Queequeg, his cannibal buddy. It's almost like a buddy flick in the beginning. As they team up and head out to Nantucket and, and find the Pequod... But then it moves in very dark direction, and, and you sort of see the flexibility of Ishmael's point of view. He, he can be fun-loving, but he can face the darkest of realities. And uh, he has a whole element of approach to life that uh, I think is, is kind of stated wonderfully in the chapter called The Hyena where initially he's thinking, oh, I'm going to go whaling and no one can pierce my immortal soul. But then he realizes once he gets out there and is almost killed during his first attempt to get a whale that this is really dangerous. And he decides to take out his will. And uh, he he talks about, well, you know, there are certain moments in the midst of the, the worst perils that when we realize that life is kind of a cruel joke that's been devised at our expense. And what do we do about this? And I see there an approach to a way to make sense out of a life that will never make sense, kind of stoical and good humored approach to deal with the darkness. So for me, Ishmael is a fundamental part of why Moby Dick matters. Now, the book that Melville started writing was more of this whaling adventure story. Yeah, I think he was almost finished with a version of a a book about whaling that seems to have been, from what evidence we have, quite a conventional, almost picaresque novel that probably would have been much better received in his own day. But in August of 1850, just as he was finishing up this first draft, he met the writer Nathaniel Hawthorne, who had just published the bestseller The Scarlet Letter. And uh, Melville was prompted to read Hawthorne's short story collection, Mosses from an Old Manse. 
and it just hit him like a two-by-four, Hawthorne's power of blackness. And he would write an anonymous review of Moss's that uh, is like a love letter, and it's almost a treatise on what he is going to do with Moby Dick. He uses Hawthorne to dive back into Shakespeare, which he had just inhaled a, a few years before, and you can just see the beginnings of what would become the character Ahab. Ahab seems to have been a relatively late invention, thanks in large part to Hawthorne, and the novel would go in a completely different direction. But where Hawthorne was a best-selling author, Melville was not. His book didn't seem to speak to his own time, and it got very little recognition and wasn't a critical success. It wasn't a financial success. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of the reason why uh, high schoolers and a lot of us have a problem with the book is why it had problems when it was published. It's not a traditional novel. The plot is is something we may all know, but Melville doesn't seem very concerned in telling it. Uh, he, You know, the story of, <laughs> of Ahab's pursuit of the white whale is just lost at times while he uh, he takes a chapter to go off on a completely different topic into a, a tangent that seems to have nothing to do with what has gone on beforehand. And it's a very almost postmodern novel, and it's uh, almost experimental. And I think for a 19th century audience, it was like, what? <laughs> you know, where is this going? And uh, it really took a couple of generations to pass before it became recognized for what it is today. Well, I want to go in so many different directions at once, because I think of Billy Budd, or I yeah. think of Bartleby the Scrivener. And there is not one excess word, Mm -hmm. I think, in either of those two pieces. Whereas Moby Dick, kind of like War and Peace, all the ruminating is going on in War and Peace. You can love the book and see where it could be cut and really not lose that much. Um, I feel like I'm walking on eggs here. But to me, there's that similarity with Moby Dick. Yeah. Well, you know, there is a wonderful slapdash quality to the book where you can sort of tell that Melville began with a first draft that he pulled apart, you know, ripped apart the foundations and created Ahab and inserted characters and then characters that just leave. It's, It's a very messy book. You know, it begins very messily. Yes, there's Call Me Ishmael, but then there's all these collection of quotes about whales that goes on for pages. And the book goes in all these different directions, and it's huge. It's a structure that is purposely disorderly. And, and at one point, Ishmael says that in a careful disorder is, is the true method. And that's what he's about. And that's very lifelike. I mean, that's how we lead our lives. And, you know, yes, there are all sorts of wonderfully perfectly chiseled books, whether it's a perfectly crafted story. And and Melville was clearly capable of that. And Billy Budd is one of those diamonds. But that's not what Moby Dick is about. You know, it's, it's vast. It's got nooks and crannies. And you can get lost, but you can always find something new, too. And, and for me, the way that works is that whenever I come back to the novel, whenever I reread it, I always find something new. And, you know, you inevitably at times can get impatient with where he's going. But the point of it is that the slower the voyage, the more you get out of it. And uh, Melville scatters little chapters like speed bumps uh, (laughs) to, to try to slow the plot. And then there's the payoff at the end. 
It's interesting, almost like the sea itself, no? Yes, those are the moods of the book. And the sea is a wonderful way of, of looking at the various moods of Moby Dick and, and the various voices of Moby Dick. You know, Ishmael's the narrator, but he transforms himself throughout the book. You know, at one point he's funny and intimate, at another point it's oracular, and at others it's very kind of pristine and, and sharp. And, and the sea, when there's no wind, it is a, you know, a mirror when there is a storm, it's waves that can devour you. And that's the kind of relentless and unpredictable mood that Melville has somehow created uh, in this novel. What was happening historically in the country at that moment when well, Melville it, was writing? We're talking the fall and winter of 1850, uh, when Melville is, is working away at this new draft. And just at this time, the Fugitive Slave Act had been passed. And uh, what this meant was that any slave that had escaped from the, the southern states into the north, if found, now had to be returned to his or her slave master. And this meant for the first time, slavery was not just a southern issue. All of the nation was involved, and, and it created a, a real maelstrom of all sorts of unrest. And in the middle of it, while Melville is working on this novel about Ahab pursuing a white whale, Melville's own father-in-law, who's a judge in Boston, finds himself overseeing the first court case involving slaves that uh, had to be returned now by this new law. And riots broke out in Boston. The judge was burned in effigy. And 10 years before the Civil War, Melville was experiencing firsthand all of the passions and outrage and fear and anger that would ultimately culminate in the Civil War. And you say we can see those traces in Moby Dick. Absolutely. I mean, I think he internalized what was happening in his own day as much as he internalized what he had taken from Hawthorne and Shakespeare. And as a result, in Moby Dick is imprinted all of the passions and, and strife that had contributed to a revolution uh, almost 100 years before and would culminate in this truly defining moment, the Civil War. And, and I think it means that whenever we in the 21st century are finding ourselves on the edge of a catastrophe, are fearing what the future holds, you can find something in Moby Dick that relates to that because that's exactly the point where Melville was when he wrote this novel. You also point out, which I thought was interesting, when people are taking off into the unknown at those times in this country, the tendency would be to go west, young man, as opposed to go to the sea. Right. You know, and I think a contributing factor to the fact that uh, Moby Dick did not succeed in finding an audience was that the ground had kind of shifted under Melville's feet in terms of his audience. Uh, he had begun just a few years before with a bestseller about his experiences in the South Pacific called Taipei. And at that point, the sea was still America's predominant frontier wilderness. It wouldn't be really until the discovery of gold in California in 1848 that America would become infatuated with the West. The whole nation would begin to turn, literally go in that direction. And America became fascinated with stories about its own interior rather than the sea around it so that Melville's book about the sea is kind of the primal wilderness that is being eroded, in a way, by this new interest in the West. And I think it, it meant that that's what people were thinking about. And it's all part of this, the same tendency, that American tendency, to go out into the unknown full of danger and promise and r resources that uh, can make you rich. 
But look, here come more crowds, pacing straight for the water, and seemingly bound for a dive. Strange. Nothing will content them but the extremest limit of the land. Loitering under the shady lee of yonder warehouses will not suffice. No, they must get just as nigh the water as they possibly can without falling in. And there they stand, miles of them, leagues, inlanders all. They come from lanes and alleys, streets and avenues, north, east, south and west. Yet here they all unite. Tell me, does the magnetic virtue of the needles of the compasses of all those ships attract them thither? Your book, In the Heart of the Sea, actually was about a real-life event that also, oddly enough, or maybe not so oddly enough, inspired Moby Dick. Yeah. Talk about the Essex and, and what part that played in the creation of Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the Essex disaster occurred in 1820, well before Moby Dick was written and 20 years before Melville went to sea as a whaleman. In 1820, a Nantucket whale ship named the Essex was about a 1,000 miles to the west of the Galapagos Islands, almost smack dab on the equator, when a giant 85-foot bull sperm whale, a whale about the size of Moby Dick, rammed and sunk the vessel. It was the first time in the history of American whaling that this was known to have occurred and inspired the climax of Moby Dick. Uh, Melville heard the story of the Essex as a whaleman, and where Moby Dick ends is really where the real-life story of the Essex begins. It, the, the men took to their three whaleboats. They could have sailed to the Marquesa Islands to the west with the trade winds, but feared the rumors of cannibals that they had heard, and then decided to go against the wind more than 3,000 miles to South America. If everything had gone right, they might have made it. Everything went wrong. Uh, they were reduced to survival cannibalism and the great horrible irony of the story. And a few would survive and tell the tale, but it became big news in America. It was kind of the Donner Party of the sea mm -hmm. uh, before there was a Donner Party. How did Moby Dick get rediscovered? Yeah. How did that process happen, and when did it happen? Well, you know, um, Moby Dick was a book that sort of languished after the, after the publication. Melville lived on for 40 years and, you know, died in obscurity. If he was known for anything, it was as the author of Typee, his first novel. And then it really wouldn't be until the 20th century, on the other side of World War I, that the novel began to be rediscovered. I, I have a personal theory that the world had to experience the cataclysm of the Great War and all of that disillusionment that that entailed to reach a point where Moby Dick suddenly began to make sense. And uh, it was embraced by a whole generation of young writers uh, Hemingway was very proud that he had read uh, Moby Dick in high school, unassigned, and he and other expats uh, would use the novel as a kind of litmus test if you had the goods in the 20s. William Faulkner would say uh, in the late 20s that uh, Moby Dick was the one novel he had not written that he wished he had written, and uh, off it would go. And by uh, 19... 51, uh, in the centennial of its publication, Moby Dick was the iconic novel, the great American novel that we see it as today. Is it also a novel that appeals to people outside of the United States, or is it such an American novel? 
It is a very American novel, but I am surprised at how international its appeal is. I just was at an event in New Bedford, which is the the holy ground of Moby Dick, uh, where a German scholar had come and uh, was the Melville expert in Germany and, and saying how big Melville is over there. And it's interesting how even if you haven't read a word of Moby Dick, everyone seems to know that story. It's become such a part of our culture, and it's clear that it goes way beyond America. And I think the fact that it's set on the ocean uh, means that there is a certain accessibility factor when it comes to cultures beyond America. You write in your book, Why Read Moby Dick, that as different crises grip the country today, there is something in Moby Dick that can speak to what's going on. Yeah. I find it kind of like a survival manual, you know, an existential guide to when we're all feeling overwhelmed and things seem like completely out of control and you're like Ishmael on the deck of the Pequod hurtling towards that encounter with the huge white whale that you know is not going to end well. Moby Dick is there as kind of, okay, so how do you deal with this in, in you know, almost a philosophical way? And I, I think uh, Moby Dick can be helpful when presented with that kind of situation. Let me ask you, you say that the book is your personal Bible. <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, I, I think the way a lot of people look to the Bible as a source of a spiritual inspiration of solace when mm-hmm. things are bad— that has great stories in it. Uh, That, for me, is what uh, Moby Dick is about. I keep a copy on my desk at home, and it seems like a fairly regular basis that I will just open it up and uh, see where the the pages open and find a paragraph and just read that paragraph. And it's interesting. Sometimes I will be trying to figure out how he does it as a writer. Other times, it's more of the philosophical aspects of what Ishmael is talking about. Sometimes it's a character, because there are all sorts of little characters that are scattered throughout there that y- you can easily forget because there's so many of them in the book. <laughs> so for me, it's, it's a repository uh, rather than a plot thrill ride. And you know, I think in this day and age, where I don't know about you, but in the last 10 years, I feel like my attention span has been just frittered away by whether it's the digital stuff, whether it's the screens everywhere, whether it's emails constantly coming at us and texting and all this stuff. I just you know, feel like my mind is, has battery acid leaking through it. <laughs> Moby Dick has become for me, and it's, and it's interesting, it, it, relatively recently it's become a, a way to just sort of put out the madness. For me, it, this book can provide that kind of oasis. It takes you from your own time into another time, but inevitably you come back. And, you know, and that, I think, is a really a great spiritual exercise. You know, it's not like you're living in a fantasy world that, you know, you have escaped and, you know, you're trying to run away from things. I think it provides a very interesting kind of perspective on life that you might lose otherwise. You mentioned you reread Moby Dick many times. Why do you reread books? This was, I think it could be close to my 12th time reading it. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, every time I I come to the book, it just feels like a different book. You know, I reread, well, one of the the problems I have is I I write nonfiction about history. And the problems I have is that 75% of my time is in the archives, researching, often reading records and, and newspapers and things like that. And and then the big challenge is delivering this in a digested form with your own voice. And I, 
you know, after three years of doing this, I often find myself feeling depleted when it comes to the literary mojo. And uh, I use this book to sort of get that mojo going in terms of (laughs) the wonderful prose, the level of the prose, which is really poetry in Moby Dick, for me, is truly transporting. And uh, that's a trite phrase, but it really does. And I just try to sort of bask in that reflected glow. And for me, it's just the source of of not only uh, literary, but uh, real spiritual uh, replenishment. And you find new things, but for me, I as a writer, I'm always sort of trying to pull up the hood and, and look at how a writer does it. And with Melville, that's an endless occupation because each chapter is almost a different kind of writing. You know, he's got parody writing. He's got almost uh, natural history writing. He's got action writing uh, in the final chapters. You know, it's all there. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful kind of clinic for when it comes to the craft of, of writing. What do you think makes some books endure? What I think it is, and, it, and you really aren't sure if a book has accomplished it until you've moved on to a, the next generation, but I think it's the ability to make you feel what it is like to be alive at any time, in a past time. And so many popular books don't accomplish that. We connect with them because we share the circumstances of those books and see something that appeals to us, but then you move to the next generation, and there really isn't enough information of that deep, what it is like to be alive at that moment, to transmit into the future. And Moby Dick is one of those books that contains so many of the essential details of what it was like to be alive in the 19th century that coming from more than 150 years later, we can get into that world and even recognize portions of our own world in that past time. And, and that is a very hard trick. You say to write timelessly about the here and now, a writer must approach the present indirectly. Mm-hmm. That I found very intriguing. Say more. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that is really, I think, the alchemy that was going on during the creation of Moby Dick. Here he is, he's writing a story that on its surface is about a whaling voyage. Clearly a a deranged captain uh, out to get the white whale that bit off his leg. But he's experiencing all the situation that we've just been talking about so that he is approaching it in the ultimately indirect way. And, you know, this is a lot the way Shakespeare's plays are supposedly about, let's say, a, a king of England. But What they're really about is what's going on in Elizabethan England as Shakespeare is working on this play. And and I think it's this inactive indirection that contains that sense of what it is to be alive at that time and creates a kind of time machine out of the work of art uh, that makes it accessible to future generations. As you say, it's a novel that many people know of and... Mm -hmm far fewer people have actually tackled. What would your advice be for approaching Moby Dick? My advice would be don't rush into it. If you have reluctance, that's okay. That's okay. But my approach is it is a big book, but it is also broken up into a lot of surprisingly brief chapters. Begin slowly with it. The plot is not going to be something that you're going to hitch on and follow to the end. And in fact, I think many of us who have been kicked around by life, who have been around the block, begin to see in Moby Dick a a lot of kinds of observations that resonate with us. And the chapters that are off point, in a way, when it comes to the plot, are often the ones that I find are the most useful and helpful. 
and enlightening. For example, I, um, when I was writing this book, I was reading uh, Moby Dick and taking notes uh, during a book tour. So I was in the airport all the time. And it was amazing to me how conducive reading Moby Dick was to the, the hectic pace of, of those of us who are trying to get to places or, or trying to fit something in between, whether it's work or children or all that kind of thing. And I think this book, if you can just feel free to dip into it for even a paragraph, put it aside and then come back to it, it, it really will reward that process. I was speaking with Nathaniel Philbrook about his book, Why Read Moby Dick. William Hootkins read excerpts from Moby Dick, which was produced by Naxos Audio. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog, or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.